when you came in, you were handed another workbook on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's another section. It's not the same section we did before with the first two chapters. This is chapter three, and we're going to go through chapter three on. We're going to go through March, and then you'll get another book after that. The idea is that we're doing a sermon series on the New Testament book of Luke, and that it would also be an opportunity to learn how to study the Bible. You ever thought to yourself, you know, I wish I knew how to read the Bible for myself, get stuff out of it myself, kind of develop that skill, that ability. Well, I think these books are getting better and better at that, helping us do that. And so if you didn't grab one coming in, if you're like me, you say no thanks and you walk on, maybe grab one on your way out and, and just give it a shot of looking at that part of the Bible we're going to talk about the following Sunday, and then we all come back after looking at the passage on our own, and we hear a sermon on it, and it might answer some of the questions that you had from that week. You might even get more out of the sermon, uh, and so we do that together as a church, and if you get a workbook, we can, we can have you be a, a part of it with us. Before I get into my sermon, I think there's a, a video that I saw that's like one of those old-timey science videos that I used to watch in junior high. They call it middle school now, but uh, you, these videos that are sort of boring, but this one's pretty cool if we just kind of pay attention to what's kind of being shown here. It's just try to pay attention and see if you can make a, connect the dots on how this might describe us. Let's go ahead and watch this. Training fleas requires a glass jar with a lid. The fleas are placed inside the jar and the lid is then sealed. They are left undisturbed for three days. Then, when the jar is opened, the fleas will not jump out. In fact, the fleas will never jump higher than the level set by the lid. Their behavior is now set for the rest of their lives. And when these fleas reproduce, their offspring will automatically follow their example. All right, let's close in prayer. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, people aren't fleas, obviously, but I think there's a picture here that might be something similar when it comes to just how do we value the things we value? How do we think about the things that we think about God, ourselves? our world, what's good, what's bad, what's worth, what's the good life, what's the bad life. Maybe it's sort of like this, that we have this little jar, this little box. It doesn't have a lid, but it has a, a lid of just sort of habits of our culture where we're all just sort of together as a culture having, being stuck in a small box. And your parents had that from their parents, from their parents, and it, get, it gets passed on from one generation to the next and we just assume this is how life is. We just assume this is reality, but maybe it's a really small jar of reality, and there's this big world out there that we don't see because, well, our culture has never really developed those habits. It would take a disruption to get the fleas out of that jar. And John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20 is God's disruption to a culture that had been passing down from generation to generation the same old way of looking at the world, looking at themselves, looking at God, and it was a very small box that God was, well, sending John to disrupt. This is how Luke tells the story. He begins the story by placing it in a date that we can look at here. He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, 
Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, during the high priesthood of Anas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, this is John the Baptist, John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, what Luke is saying is, the story he's getting ready to tell in the whole rest of the Gospel of Luke is anchored in real history. These are real characters we know of in history, and he's also going to tell us the characters like John the Baptist and others, Jesus and others, that are real characters in history. This is a real story. It's interesting because even just looking at those verses there, verses 1 and 2, this Herod right here, well, it says in verse 20, God, uh, it says in verse 20, Luke tells us that Herod put John the Baptist in prison. And we know later in the gospel that he actually had John the Baptist killed, executed. What's interesting is we know from history that shortly after Herod had John the Baptist executed, Herod went to war with another group of people, another nation, and his entire army got wiped out. And so the guy named Josephus, 60 years after this, in 90 AD, so just follow me here for a minute, in 90 AD, there's not a, he's not a Christian, he's a Roman citizen who's writing a history of the Jews, and in his history of the Jews that he's writing in 90 AD, again, 60 years after this, well, he's talking about Herod having his whole army wiped out, and he has a really interesting suspicion of why. Here's what he says. This is Josephus writing in 90 AD. This is not a Christian. This is just other history. Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God as a just punishment of what Herod had done against John, who was called the Baptist. He goes on, for Herod had killed this good man who had commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, righteousness towards one another, and piety towards God. For only thus, and this is Josephus' interpretation of John, for only thus, in John's opinion, would the baptism he administered be acceptable to God. He goes on, Now many people came, many people came in crowds to, to him, for they were greatly moved by his words. Herod, who feared that the great influence John had over the masses might put them into his power and enable him to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise, thought it best to put him to death. So it's really interesting. We know from history, not the Bible, from a historian in 90 AD that John the Baptist had all these huge crowds coming to hear him. And the crowds, there was something about them where they were just so influenced by his teaching, they were ready to do anything that he should advise. And his teaching about virtue and righteousness toward one another and piety toward God and all that was something that historically is part of history that's being written in a book for Romans to read in 90 AD. So when Luke is talking about John the Baptist, he's talking about what we, a person we know from history. This is all stuff that we know from other writings as well. And it's interesting because as he writes real history, now he's going to describe in a biblical sense what was the ministry of John the Baptist. So he says in verse 3, he says, he went into all the country around the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. So what, what Luke's gonna do is he's gonna now go back to a book that is in 700 B.C., so 700 years before this, 
was written by a prophet named Isaiah. This is a, a book in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And there's a prophecy in that book in chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, that Luke is saying is a description of John the Baptist's ministry. So here's what he says. As Isaiah says, and this is the quote, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. God's salvation, no, something has happened Again, passing down from parents after parents after parents, something has happened in our culture. When we hear that word, we see that word in the Bible, salvation. We spiritualize it, but that's not what this is. This is talking about God's restoration. This is talking about restoring what is broken. And so here's what's interesting, is that back when this was written by Isaiah in 700 BC, what kings would do is they would, if they would took a journey to part of their kingdom, or maybe even go to war in some situations, they had to make sure they had roads for their entourage or roads for their vast army. They just couldn't go out there and walk on paths that people had worn with their feet. Otherwise, it'd be a mess. And so what they would do, a king would send engineers ahead of time, and those engineers had soldiers with them, and they would conscript the local people to fix the roads. They would get rid of boulders, roadblocks. They would raise gullies, build bridges. They would make sure it's going to be something where the king's entourage or the army can get through. And so that image is the image Isaiah is using to describe something that is a kind of a microcosm image of the whole Bible. The whole Bible is summed up in this microcosm image because here's why. If you think about what this Lord is here, in the Hebrew scriptures it was written in, in Isaiah, I'm, it's gonna be too technical for me to, you have to take my word for it. This is in the Hebrew, God's name Yahweh. So this is not a, just a king this is the king of all creation. This is the God who created the universe. And he's coming, and because it's God, it's not a matter of repairing roads like removing roadblocks and boulders. The mountains will be brought low. It's not a matter of just raising gullies and building bridges. The valleys will be raised up. That all creation has this brokenness to it. All creation has this crookedness to it. And God is coming with his restoration, and he is going to fix everything that is broken in this world. That's the story of the Bible, the one epic story of the entire Bible, and he's going to do that through whoever this is. Well, it's Yahweh, but the way Luke is using this passage, who is it? See, because see, the way Luke is using this passage as a prophecy of the ministry of John the Baptist, if, if John the Baptist is the voice crying in the wilderness, then what he's preparing the way for is for Jesus, and Jesus is Yahweh. This is one of those places in the Bible where John, excuse me, Luke is not being preachy. He's not telling you what you should believe. He's telling you what happened. And he's drawing uh, an ex uh, uh, something from Isaiah to help you connect the dots, just like he did. He's a, a later Greek convert to Christianity. He wasn't one of Jesus' disciples. And so he wants you to use your mind and connect the dots. If John is the voice, Jesus is Yahweh. And if Jesus is God, 
what that means is that if, we, if we're gonna have Jesus in our life, we have to have him come into our life as God. And when God comes in with his salvation, he doesn't adapt to our broken roads. He doesn't adapt to our, 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 our ways that are broken. He fixes, he rebuilds, he brings restoration. And so that's what God is doing when he brings restoration. He does that through disruption. John the Baptist is a disruption to this culture in Jesus' time because he's preparing the way. He's trying to get people to recognize the coming of God when he comes. And so you can feel the disruption when you listen to the words of John. It feels disruptive. It doesn't go down smooth. When God comes into your life, he brings disruption. When God comes into a world, he brings disruption. And it begins with these words from John, as Luke describes them in verse 16, excuse me, verse 7. It says, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. I don't know, as you read that, and you're thinking, no, wait a minute, if you're trying to be somebody who is you know, winsome to a crowd that's coming, you probably don't wanna start by insulting them. But is John insulting them? Well, we think so, but did they think so? Because see, remember, these huge crowds came out to him, even Josephus writes 60 years later, huge crowds came out to him and they loved him so much they'd do anything he said. My guess is, if they thought he was insulting him, that wouldn't have been the case. Insulting them, that wouldn't have been the case. So we must be reading something that they weren't hearing. And I think the key is to understand the biblical imagery of what he just said. Remember, back on December 10th, I talked about the spiritual world. And there are these fallen spiritual beings, these fallen gods, that are part of the tragedy of the earth, part of the brokenness of the earth. You can listen to that sermon. I'm not gonna get into it now. But one of the things we talked about was back in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3, there's this viper. This is the same word. It just means serpent, snake, in the Garden of Eden. And that serpent, that snake, is the one who got Adam and Eve to reject God's will and had them expelled from the garden, had the whole human race expelled from the garden in that sense, and brought this Genesis 3 brokenness to the entire world ever since. So a, a brood of a viper, that's just a, a way the English translation has made it you know, kind of you know, snaky and all that kind of stuff. Really all it just means is offspring of snakes. What he's saying, I think, to these people is he says this, he says that, that, that you can have repentance. It's not too late to change your mind. You're a, you're a slave of the serpent, and here's what the serpent is saying. When a serpent comes, he doesn't tell you to disobey God. He doesn't tell you to sin. I mean, that's our image in our mind, but what did he do with Adam and Eve? He, he never told them to eat the forbidden fruit. Those words never came out of his mouth. All he did was ask questions that planted a seed of doubt that God cannot be trusted for what's my best. See, once they bought that lie that God doesn't want them to be happy, 
God is holding back. They can't trust his will to be their best life. And once that seed got planted in their head, well, then they took matters in their own hands. And that's how the serpent comes in our lives, is that he doesn't tell us to do this or tell us to do that. He just plants that thought in our head. You can't trust God. His will is not your best life. He doesn't want you to be happy the way you want to be happy. So you have to take matters in your own hands. And when you do, you become somebody whose mind is outside reality because you're outside the reality of who God really is. So when he says, you offspring of snakes, it's saying something along the lines of, you're a slave of the snake, but it's not too late for you to change your mind of how you think about God. And so he says, he says practice fruit in keeping with repentance. This is, a, this is a word that was commonly used in the Greek language this was written in. It was not a religious word. We think it's a religious word. It's not a religious word in that, in that day. It just is a word that meant change your mind. It was an everyday Greek word that meant change your mind. So John is saying it's not too late to change how you think about God. And when you change how you think about God, it changes more than that. There's fruit that comes with changing your mind that way that shows up in your life. So John mentions some things. He talks, people say, what must we do? And so he says to people, well, if you have two sets of clothing, share with somebody who doesn't have any. Now, he's not talking to the super wealthy. He's just talking to people who have two sets. Share with somebody who doesn't have any. If you have extra food, share with those who don't. If you're a tax collector, well, that was somebody in those days that worked for the Roman occupation government, and they would you know, extort people's tax money, but they would extort too much so that they can keep part for themselves. Well, John says, you don't need to quit your job. You can still be a tax collector, but don't collect any more than you're required. If you're a soldier, you don't have to resign. If you're a soldier, he says, just don't use your force to extort money from people. In all these things, there's one common theme, and that is, if you change the way you think about God, that he has your best life in his will, in his plan for you, once you understand and change your mind and catch that about God, it completely changes how you view yourself. It completely frees you from being a slave of the snake, always having to worry about whether or not you're gonna get what you need, always having to worry about you getting what's yours. Just imagine no longer having to have all your thoughts oriented around yourself. Imagine a life where you're not self-oriented. You don't have to be. You're freed up to love and help other people. Can you imagine? Let me just, if, what if you never again had another thought of being oriented around yourself? What if you never, never had another thought of, of pride and, and how, how other people see you and whether or not people admire you the way they should or, or whether or not where you are in the pecking order or whether or not you're losing status in some social situation or whether or not you should be ashamed and what are you gonna do with that sense of shame? Who are you gonna blame? Whose fault is that shame? And all this energy you put into managing this self-oriented life what if you didn't have to do any of that? Well, how much bandwidth in your brain would that free up? How many sleepless nights would that give you back? 
How many broken relationships would that heal? Now, I don't think that's possible for us this side of the resurrection to do it, this side of heaven, but we can do it in degrees if we have this changing of our mind of how we see God. God sent John to be a disruptor in how people were thinking about God and therefore pulling people out of this small box. The culture keeps doing it. Every parent of every generation has passed it down to the next generation. You have to live for yourself, worry about yourself, be respected, make sure you get what's yours and make sure people respect you and all these things that the ways you deal with shame in your life. What if you didn't have to do that anymore? Well, that's gonna take disruption. And he was a disruptor then, and he's a disruptor now when we read his words. But remember, he's coming to help these people to recognize Jesus when he comes. His whole message is trying to get people to recognize the salvation of God and Jesus when he appears on the scene. And so he describes Jesus in this chapter in a way that is like it's part of an epic story. Think of Lord of the Rings. Somebody in Lord of the Rings is giving a prophecy of the coming king and how he's going to restore this broken world that's enslaved by Mordor or something like that. That's kind of what John sounds like if you listen to it with fresh ears. It sounds like he's a character in an epic story. That's what he says in verse 16. Just notice how he says it. He says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, this is really epic language. He's going to baptize you just as I'm baptizing you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit who is the giver of all life everywhere. And he's going to baptize you with the fire which purifies everything in his path. And then he goes on and says this, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. And then Luke goes on to say, and with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Huh? Does that sound like good news to you? Somehow, it sounded like good news to them. Somehow, these crowds kept coming, so much so that Josephus is writing about it 60 years later, and they would do anything he said because they trusted him. Somehow, they were coming because to them, it was good news. What's the good news? The king is coming, and he's going to restore this broken world. He's going to baptize you. He's going to baptize those who are his with the Holy Spirit and with the purity, the purification of fire. And he is going to bring devastating judgment to all evil and all brokenness in this world without having to sweep away you because he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But he is going to rid this world of everything broken, everything of the snakes, all the broods of vipers. He is going to rid this world of it and he is going to bring this world back to what was promised in Genesis 1, this world of awe and this world of wonder and this world of human flourishing everywhere. That's not a message the privileged in this world want to hear because they're kind of glad with the way things are. 
But this is a message that is a disruption. If you understand the brokenness in your life and you understand the brokenness in this world, this is good news. It's going to be restored. A king is coming. But it's going to require disruption. Maybe God has brought disruption in your life. I remember back in this summer, uh, uh, the U.S. soccer star Megan Rapinoe uh, was in, in the U.S. soccer games, women's soccer games, and in her last match of her career, six minutes into it, she, uh, at the time, saw she ruptured her Achilles. And so afterwards, she, you know, she, she had to leave the game, and afterwards, she said it was the worst possible outcome that could happen. And she was being interviewed uh, afterwards, and she said this because of that happened. She said, I'm not a religious person or anything, and if there was a God, like, this is proof that there isn't, that she ruptured her Achilles. Now, she said it with a smile. If you watch the interview, she's, she knows she's kind of half joking, half serious. And, you know, I kind of smirked and thought, you know, oh, woman, bless your heart. A lot more suffering is coming your way. Buckle up. This is not the big one yet. But then I got to thinking, you know what? How, are any of us really any different? Uh, you know, we, we, my guess is you're here because in some sense, to some degree, you believe in God. But I wonder if we just added a few words, if it, if it might be something closer to what we say, that, that, that this is proof that there isn't a God I can trust for my best life. That when disruption comes, like it came in her life, when disruption comes in our life, that's when we are get angry with God. That's when we're not sure we can trust him for our happiness. We're not sure he's doing what is our best life. We might have to take matters into our own hands and we're kind of wanting to kind of stay away from God. We're not even sure that he loves me. When God brings disruption, it's not that he's trying to ruin your life. It's just he's trying to fix your ruined life. He's trying to repair your roads. He's trying to lower the mountains and raise the valleys and fix what is broken so that you can be part of his epic story. God has come. God is coming in Christ, and he is bringing his restoration. He is bringing his salvation to this broken world. And disruption is proof that he wants you in it. But you have to let him be God. Let Jesus be God so that he can bring you into his epic story. Amen.